0: Hello, everyone. We are lucky to be joined by Clayton Truder, a professor up in Vermont, author of multiple books, and also a familiar friend of mine from the blogosphere uh, who has covered the Cincinnati Bearcats in the past. Clayton, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on. This is like 10 years in the making, actually, actually (laughs) hearing your voice. I think maybe five years ago, one time we were on a podcast together, a Houston football podcast. But I think that was the extent of our conversation. So it's nice to finally make this acquaintance more fully.
0: Absolutely. Same here. And yeah, shout out to the to the Scott and Holman uh, podcast, fellas. Um, And, you know, our our, both of our former homes, the AAC, uh, which I'm sure we're all. (laughs) Uh, happy to be r- rid of uh, as well at this time
1: well it was nice going to SMU and UCF and stuff every I guess well no it wasn't
0: I mean <laughs> no no you don't have to be nice anymore you don't have to be
1: nice. or whatever yeah <laughs>
0: um, but you know as as fate would have it uh, Clayton has a life outside of Cincinnati blogging and uh, in that life he's uh, written a couple of books uh, including one that I think will be of significant interest to Husky fans. But first, uh, you want to just share with us how you got that first book out? What is it? What's the story about? Um, we'd love to hear.
1: Um, I my, my name is Clayton Truder. I, uh, I hold a Ph.D. in U.S. history from Boston College. I teach at Norwich University, which is a small military college in Vermont. I've worked as a Cincinnati Bearcats blogger for quite a few years, uh, for SB Nation. It's a dearly departed blog. I think the sentence you said um, that was along the lines of, he has a life outside of Cincinnati Bearcats blogging may have been the first time that sentence was ever said by a human being. Um, I write for a wide range of city and regional magazines, typically on sports and pop culture related topics. I have two books. My first book came out last year. It's called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Pro Sports. It came from my doctoral dissertation. In essence, it's the story of Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports in the 1960s. Atlanta is the first great expansion city. They have no pro sports whatsoever. In 1965, by 1972, they have teams in all four leagues because they built Two stadiums, then it's a story about the lukewarm public response in Atlanta, at least initially to pro sports. My second book, which is much more of much more interest to all of you, is called Boston Ball Rick Patino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. Uh, I came up with a concept while I was living in Boston and I was in graduate school. And it occurred to me that three different Hall of Fame coaching careers in basketball all began roughly simultaneously in Boston in relative obscurity. You have Jim Calhoun coaching at Northeastern. You have Rick Pitino coaching at BU and Gary Williams coaching at BC, all who go on to bigger and better things and end up winning national titles and ending up in the Basketball Hall of Fame.
0: That is some super cool stuff. And yes, we will be very excited to hear about the essentially origin story of the Yukon basketball hero, Jim Calhoun. Um, but I think that's so interesting about Atlanta getting four pro sports really quickly. I was just in Vegas uh, covering NBA Summer League and the WNBA All-Star Game. And there's a lot of rumors that they're about to get um, an NBA team as well. They, they got a football team, they got a hockey team, a baseball team's on the way. That's about to be a four, a four sports city if that comes through. Any parallels with Atlanta and Las Vegas?
1: Oh, completely. They're two different cities that have both grabbed for the brass ring. I mean, Vegas had a clear profile and a clear relationship to sports, but I think in part, the softening of the relationship in the, of the public toward gambling has made this possible for Vegas. Atlanta is a great city at hyping itself. Atlanta had no particular reason to be a pro sports town in the mid 60s, other than that their political leaders decided that this was their way to gain a new national profile. The city leaders were very concerned that Atlanta's name would be alongside New York and Los Angeles and Philadelphia in the standings, thus de facto proof of there being a major city. So I, I think I think that, that city ambition is shared by the cities but vegas had a lot more going for it it's already a place of focus whereas atlanta was a regional hub in the southeast but i don't think anybody nationally other than possibly people interested in coca-cola cared about atlanta in 1965
0: totally fair very interesting stuff all right we are done with the uh pleasantries though we want to hear about jim calhoun so you mentioned you're you're in boston Uh, you're at Boston College, we will not hold that against you, we will try not to hold that against you, but uh, you're, you're in Boston, you're realizing that there's some really interesting careers, uh, you know, Hall of Fame careers bubbling up simultaneously. Um, For me, I will say personally, you know, obviously, as someone who has studied the Jim Calhoun story immensely, it largely kind of starts in 1986, when he arrives at UConn. And if anything, I, I know that he's a you know successful coach at at Northeastern before that and it sounds like you have really gone deep on on everything before that is that right
1: absolutely yes i mean it's an origin story for all three coaches i call it an origin story for modern college basketball these three coaches won a combined six national championships they've been to 14 final fours they've won more than 2400 games collectively uh, college basketball in the late 90s and the 2000s is largely a product of what these guys created. One thing they all shared was having a much more up tempo approach than a lot of college programs at the time uh, when they got their jobs. Big men completely were dominating college basketball in the 1970s. These guys couldn't recruit elite big men. They couldn't get Artis Gilmore or Bill Walton or whoever to come to their program. So they built it around speed, around trapping, pressing, uh, run and gun kind of basketball. So they all have this shared sensibility they they bring to the game, which one certainly sees later on with them. Uh, I think Calhoun is probably the most interesting of the three stories. Because he comes from really the most left field situation of any of these guys. And I and I'm, for my opinion, Calhoun is the greatest college basketball coach, not named John Wooden. I mean, you look at the other blue blood coaches there are. Dean Smith, Shashevsky, Bob Knight, whoever, those guys walked into programs that were already great programs. I mean, even Shashevsky, I guess, rebuilds at Duke. They'd been in the national title game two years before Shashevsky got there. Um, UNC was great with McGuire before Dean Smith gets there. Bob, Indiana had been great since the 30s and 40s. UConn had been a, a very good regional school in New England, had been very good in the ECAC, in the Yankee Conference back in the 60s and 70s. But when Calhoun gets to town, I mean... UConn had finished seventh or worse in the in the uh, Big East from 1981 through 85 under Don Perno, who had been a very successful coach in the 70s, as well as his uh, uh, D. Rowe, his predecessor, had been very successful regionally. But the idea that this school from a fairly small state, a fairly diffuse campus at the time when he gets there, that this would be the coach of a national major ma- major power seems incredibly unlikely, particularly when one looks at Calhoun's backstory, having been a, a a high school coach, having been a high school teacher who who goes to a college that had been a Division II basketball program basically until he gets there at Northeastern. Um, and, and I can certainly expand upon all that. But uh, uh, when Jim Calhoun gets his first college job in 1972, the idea that he's going to be in the Basketball Hall of Fame and among the great coaches in college history, I don't think anybody, including Jim Calhoun himself, would have thought that.
0: Yeah that's that's really interesting and and of course Clayton you are, you are preaching to the choir I'm I'm not sure if pandering but either way you're doing a, a Oh I've
1: said this job. I've said this on everywhere I've been that he's the second greatest college coach of all time. And in some ways I think he has some some disadvantages relative to Wooden. Wooden walks into a huge state university that's great in every sport. I mean there's already a strong athletic culture at UCLA. UConn really didn't have a lot going on sports wise in 1986. I mean, and to a great extent, it was kind of a commuter school when he gets there.
0: For sure, no, and and yeah, I mean, I think you have to count the degree of difficulty. Um, but so yeah, let's let's talk about Calhoun's rise and and to set the stage. I mean, what is it about Boston in this time? What's what's going on? It sounds like part of it is maybe this talent talent thing, where maybe not all of it is so concentrated in that area, but. What what's going on in Boston at that time that you think you know led to such, uh, you know, special careers being originated?
1: I think the obscurity of all three programs at the time, even BC, which was in the Big East and doing very well. I mean, BC secretly is one of the heavyweights of the early Big East. They win the conference regular season title in two of the first four seasons. They go to the Sweet 16 four out of five years. But they're very much a niche thing in Boston. Even BC was at best the fifth most popular thing in town. So even though they did very well among their alums, they played at a building called the Robert Center, which resembled a bowling alley. And they would put 4,800 people in that 4,800 seat building for every single game, but it was like BC alums, BC undergraduates who followed them. Outside of that, they didn't have a very strong uh, very strong um, base. BU and Northeastern played to a few hundred people throughout the 1970s, very small crowds. It's not till things get really going for Northeastern during the 1980s that Calhoun's, Calhoun's teams really are playing in front of big crowds. I think being, being able to have these very kind of quiet laboratories basically enabled them to build recruiting pipelines, to to develop particular styles of play and approaches over time. And I think in, in each case, that that worked to their advantage, that they were able to develop a distinct culture of program building before they went to the big time.
0: Very cool. So uh, yeah, with Jim Calhoun then specifically, what was uh, what were the early years like for him?
1: Jim Calhoun is about the most driven human being I can think of. He grew up in Braintree, Massachusetts, in a blue collar family. He is the man of his household when he's like 14 years old. His father died when he had a heart attack when he was very young. He was incredibly tight with his father. He'd go to high school football games. He played baseball with him, he'd play basketball. And Calhoun is like working basically like a full time job from age 14 onward. I mean, like in high school, he's working as a stone cutter for graves in Braintree, Massachusetts, while playing three sports, while supporting his mother, who had a serious heart problem, while supporting his younger siblings. I mean, this dude had a lot of weight on his shoulders from a young age. And he, from that point on, he initially signed up to go play at a school called Lowell State, which is now UMass Lowell. But he had to quit because his mother had health problems because he needed to support his younger siblings. Uh, Eventually, his high school coach, uh, a guy named Fred Hergett, uh braintree where he's from was a big power in in massachusetts basketball convinced him to take a shot to play at aic american international college in springfield the guy who was the coach there had seen him play at like a rec league game and said man this guy's a great player he goes on he's working he works at night at the milton bradley uh factory that makes board games in springfield mass that's where they're based he was doing that every night of the week while playing basketball at AIC while getting a sociology degree and he ends up being a little all-american for what what used to be called the college division there was the university division which was D1 and then everybody else which which is i guess would be all of the D2 and D3 people was called the college division he was an all-american uh, at, at AIC and brought them to the uh, college division tournament in 1965 from there he gets a, he gets married he has kids he's coaching high school basketball i mean his real Um, The real time he gets noticed is when he's coaching in a town called Dedham, uh, Massachusetts, which is just south of Boston, which is a school that had been very weak basketball school historically. The year before he takes over at Dedham High, they'd won one game. Two years later, they are in the Massachusetts Massachusetts State Tournament as an undefeated team. He had turned this into this pressing, trapping, aggressive team that played very tough defense, um, just completely rebuilt this team in his image. And they end up losing the state semifinal based on his high school success, he gets this college job at Northeastern. And this is an incredibly odd way to get a job. Northeastern in the 1960s, Northeastern's grown into being a fairly prominent university, very large school. At the time it was a commuter school, almost exclusively, almost like a night school um, into the 1960s. It was originally, Northeastern was originally at the YWCA in Boston in in the basement. And then it evolved into being a university. Um, In the 1960s, they were a power in the NCAA college division and went to that tournament almost every year. Um, I actually talk about that a fair amount in the book, how good they were as a D2 program. Late in the 1960s, they decide they're going to transition to division one. And it's a multi-year process at that point to move up to what is called the university division at the time. And their schedule changes. They stop being able to go to this tournament. Interest in the program starts to wane a little bit because they're not winning all the time and going to the tournament all the time their head coach at Northeastern is a guy named Dick Dukeshire, who was an incredibly successful coach. One. I mean, he had a winning season every single year. was at Northeastern. He got an opportunity to coach the Greek national team and he coaches them in the 72 Olympics. Um, and, um, he gets sick when he's coaching over there and comes home to America, isn't able to, to, to retain the job. Uh, the guy who was the interim coach is a guy named Jim Bowman who, um, had always wanted to be in the fbi he's only 28 or 29 years old he got a letter offering him to join the fbi so one coach is too sick to coach the second coach wants to join the fbi three weeks before practice starts in the 1972-73 season northeastern is scrambling to find a coach so they went and they got the best high school coach they could find in calhoun who was teaching social studies at dedham high school and all of a sudden is coaching a division one basketball team in its first season in division one with a bunch of division two players and they go 19 and seven. I mean that he, he just, he, he, uh, they, they Northeastern had played a very kind of like a conservative kind of, uh, motion offense, old fashioned kind of, kind of style of play. And he really moved them in a much more up-tempo style. Um, they're very successful his first year struggle a bit in the set for a lot of the seventies because they have trouble recruiting, uh, recruiting players into the uh, recruiting division one level players uh, he eventually starts to turn it around in the early 80s um, and once he developed some recruiting pipelines notably to Pittsburgh there was a there was a uh, a northeastern alum who was in uh, was part of the upward bound program in Pittsburgh which was a, a an anti-poverty program aimed at getting first generation college students uh, to school there was a guy at upward bound in Pittsburgh who was a northeastern alum A lot of great basketball players came from Pittsburgh to Northeastern. He built a pipeline into the mid-Atlantic states, most notably Reggie Lewis coming from that pipeline, and he found a lot of good players in Massachusetts, too. During the early to mid-1980s, Northeastern goes to the tournament six out of seven years under Calhoun. Three straight years, they score first-round upsets against people. Nobody wants to play them, but nobody knows what the name of the school is either. People called them Northwestern throughout this run or wrote the word Northeastern on their locker room because that's the way calhoun talks in that heavy boston accent so it would say northeastern on their locker room um one time they had almost knocked villanova wins the title in 85 the year before that Northeastern almost knocks them out in the second round. They go to triple overtime. Calhoun is walking back to the press conference. He gets stopped by security because they don't recognize that he's a coach of a program and they they jostle him for like 5 minutes trying to figure out who he is before figuring out he's the coach of the team that just almost knocked out Villanova at the Meadowlands.
0: Wow. So, uh incredible stuff. First I'm realizing how unlikely his original hiring is at, at Northeastern. It sounds like a lot of fate lining up to get him there with sounds like Northeastern being kind of in a tight spot at the time.
1: Absolutely. And then there, Northeastern had a very proud tradition in D2. All the guys were like, who the hell is this guy? How is he our coach now? We've, we've been winning year after year after year at this level, this high school coach, what's he doing coming in? I mean, it worked out very quickly. They saw that it, that it was going to work out, but uh, he was an incredibly unlikely guy to, uh, to, to come in and take over the program. Um, one of my favorite pictures in the book is a picture from right after he got hired. Um, it you could tell this is a dude who wasn't used to wearing a suit. Like he was very much seemed very uncomfortable. It's an ill fitting suit. Um, he certainly didn't look like he'd spent a lot of time in the sun over the summer. Was was was, was very pale and uncomfortable and in an ill fitting suit in the picture. Um, he, he he certainly um, uh, you know gussies up over time, but it's a it's it's a very different Jim Calhoun you'll see in that picture.
0: that's funny i mean hey that's what you're looking for in a basketball coach right you want someone who's inside in the film room he's not getting tan he's not he's not going on vacations in the summer he's on the recruiting trail and uh he's a uh gruff motherfucker too if if you wanted in this in the uh vision of jim calhoun as well
1: i gotta say i i I had the pleasure of interviewing him for it he was a joy to talk to it was like sitting down at a bar with an old friend We chatted for like an hour and a half. He would have chatted for five hours, I think. I was just done with questions. We talked about every player he ever had. He remembered everybody's major. I mean, his commitment to that team and those guys, it was deeply personal for him. You could tell his relationship with all of those guys. And I have no doubt that it was the same way at UConn too. Uh, One thing I've heard from people that had some interaction, both with him at Northeastern and at UConn, is that Northeastern was always the frame of reference for everything he did there would be working with Karan Butler or somebody, and be like, "Oh, you're just like Mark Halsell, who was my power forward in 1981." And be like, "You should do this thing that he did in a particular game. That that if you were a guy who played at UConn, you learned all about these Northeastern guys. That they were like your you know heroes from a previous generation. That this is he was he had built up a culture in the Northeastern program over 14 years there, and he brought it um, wholesale to to UConn. And I think in great to a great extent, that was his appeal." There were many people considered for that job at UConn and um, the I I spoke with uh, John Castine, who was the president of UConn at the time, and he had dinner with him at a steakhouse, um, just sort of when he was considering him for the job, the the athletic director john toner had brought him in. Basically, after having seen him at UConn had a had a tournament in 1985, 86 called the Connecticut Mutual Classic. It was held at the uh New Haven Coliseum. Back then they were splitting their games between the New Haven Coliseum and the Hartford Civic Center. <laughs> and Yukon, I mean, and Northeastern just came in and blew the doors off of Yukon in the game. A big East team, this school from the little ECAC came in, beat them by 25, was in much better shape, just running up and down the floor, destroying them. And he said, I'm going to consider this guy for my new head coach because Don Perno is probably not going to continue on with the job, despite having been very successful in the late seventies and early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, Castine, the president brings him in and he said Calhoun had a plan in place already, how he was going to develop this program into a winner. And the first thing Calhoun said was I want to win the NIT because he explained that this was a stepping stone to show people that the program could accomplish something that, Nobody else he talked to had even mentioned this NIT thing, and he took it very seriously. In year two, they go out and win the NIT in 1988, and people in stores acted like they just won the Super Bowl. I mean, the footage from that time period, I mean, every piece of furniture from every dorm got pulled out and burned in a bonfire. There were tens and thousands of people uh celebrating it, it was a remarkable thing old days. and i think also important for the state of connecticut too giving it a firm sense of place a firm sense of identity something to build around it's remarkable how much support the whalers got during the 1980s despite being you know a decent team i mean there was a they held the parade in hartford in 1986 for the whalers when they lost the adams division final this is a team that got beat in the second round and got a parade through downtown. I mean, there are not a lot of cities where that's the case. They were starving for something to support and Yukon men's basketball. And then very quickly Yukon women's basketball, give them this, this tie that bound people together in many ways, what Atlanta was looking for in the sixties, Connecticut got during the 1980s with their, with their teams. that just slowly evolved and built up and grew.
0: Nice. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask about that with, with Jim Calhoun, one of the notable things, again, as, as a UConn fan, the story starts in 1986, right? And, and his press conferences, and, and I think early years talking about that vision that you explained, where he's got very high aspirations. He thinks very, you know, he thought UConn could be what it became, which was an insane thought in, in 1986. Just given that he, again, was a high school teacher and and a very unlikely uh, person uh, 12 14 years earlier when do you think that 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 mindset kind of evolved for him from like i'm just kind of here doing it to i'm going to be really really great at this and also you know pursue the highest 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 level
1: I think the minute he got the job at Northeastern, he thought that he thought, I'm not going back. This is my shot. I mean, he took a pay cut to take the Northeastern job from really? his high school team. Well, I mean, the high school teaching job was a union job. It had good benefits and stuff. He he was getting paid like he was getting paid like 17.5 teaching high school in 1972. He's getting 16 at Northeastern. This is better than the guy wow. before him who had to in the in the springtime coach the JV baseball team too. At least Calhoun <laughs> could just focus on basketball. Uh, It was a a very different time in terms of college, college athletics. I mean, Gary Williams in the book, Gary Williams uh, with his first college job was an assistant at Lafayette for Tom Davis, who's his predecessor at BC. He had to coach the men's soccer team in the fall. He'd never played soccer (laughs) in his life. He just had them do basketball drills. And he's like, you guys are college soccer players. You know, soccer, you do the soccer stuff. I can do some conditioning. And they were like a 500 team.
0: (laughs) Yes, you are absolutely right. That college <laughs> college athletics was a different enterprise. Now we have a uh, uh, 13 strength coaches and 14 graduate assistants and uh, and a get back coach and a barber maybe. Very
1: very very different. I mean, I think just you see what's been built up at UConn over the years. Certainly, just having remarkable athletic infrastructure. It's really a product of what the two basketball teams accomplished that made made that possible and made it one of the great universities in the region too. Certainly
0: absolutely we love to hear it so you know we've we've checked in with our heroes so let's check in with our nemesis as well what (laughs) what is richard patino up to at this time um he's he's building an evil empire alongside jim calhoun how is that happening
1: well they're like two miles from each other in bu and northeastern i mean they it's like a you know, it's like a 20 minute ride on the trolley from one to the other or like a in the summertime, like a 40 minute sunburned walk from one to the other. <laughs> They're basically on either side of Fenway Park. I did the walk the other day and got a really bad sunburn uh, when I when I was down and down in Boston. Um, Rick Patino is a guy who I think from about the age of eight knew he wanted to be a basketball coach. I mean, he's like at age eight, he's he's like until dark is out shooting baskets. He grew up in, in, initially in a neighborhood in Queens, uh, Cambria Heights, which is the same neighborhood Bob Cousy grew up in, the first of the great New York City point guards. And I think Patino perceived himself as being part of that legacy from early on. He moved out to long Island as a, as a, as a teenager, was an excellent high school basketball player played at UMass, which was very much a power in the sixties and seventies in the Yankee conference, went to the NIT every year. When that was a thing, he played alongside Dr. J for a year. He, Al Skinner who coached at BC was his teammate and a fellow long Island guy. When they initially went to campus together, they rode in Patino's car to Amherst, Massachusetts together and I've been, I've been friends ever since then. Um, Patino was a was a very good college player who went to a program where he went from being a guy in high school where he shot the ball like 30 times a game to being a point guard who was told to never shoot the ball. Krzyzewski's story with Bobby Knight is a very similar thing. He goes, he's got this kind of hard-ass coach who tells him to not do anything instinctually that he wants to. It may have broken both of them down as players a little bit, but it, it invented them both as coaches. Patino goes and is an assistant at Hawaii for a couple of years. It's very briefly with the head coach when the head coach gets fired. He becomes an assistant with Bayheim for a couple of years at Syracuse. Actually on Patino's wedding night, Patino got the job offer. From Beheim, who showed up at the hotel in New York City where the wedding was happening, and they had a four-hour conversation. He's like missing the cake cutting and the first dance and all this stuff to talk about his job with uh with with Beheim, <laughs> and it cancels wow. the honeymoon to go on a recruiting trip. Um,
0: <laughs> two not years surprising later... stuff. Not surprising stuff <laughs> not when you not. know the man.
1: Two years later, he's uh, he's a twenty-five-year-old head coach at BU. BU was. A very weak program. I mean, they they had a part time guy as their basketball coach who also coached the soccer team at BU. Guy named Roy Sigler who actually did a very nice job recruiting, but um, and a lot of the good players on Patino's early teams were guys that the Sigler had recruited. Patino walks in. Bayheim told him, "Don't even take this job interview. This is the worst job in the Northeast. You have no chance of winning there." Patino's like, "I want to be a head coach." So he goes in. Must have given the greatest job interview of all time talked the program up from six to 15 scholarships, doubled the recruiting budget and talked his way into a car for uh, traveling around. The previous coach was like, why didn't I get all this stuff? You had this stuff lying around. Why could I not have this? Patino walks in, adopts this, this very aggressive, wild press, wild conditioning program for the team. And BU goes from an also ran to a very strong team all of a sudden And Patino and Calhoun have these very intense battles between BU and Northeastern during the late seventies and early eighties and start to develop interest in both of these programs that were drawing very poorly. Uh, I mean, things were a little better at Northeastern in terms of attendance. BU often had like 200 people at their games with Rick Patino coaching there. A team that went to the NCAA tournament in 1983 with Patino, his last team at BU, they averaged 600 fans a game. They just, they just couldn't get any interest on the campus. People were either interested in the stuff of the city or they were interested in the other pro sports teams in town or the great hockey team at BU. Um, The Miracle on Ice guys are playing there. Ruzioni, Jim Craig, those guys are playing at BU. Well, Patino is trying to get people interested in basketball. I mean, Rick Patino used to stand on Commonwealth Avenue with ticket vouchers to hand out to students like he was a band trying to get people come to his like, you know, house show or whatever to get people to come to their basketball games. Um, and these guys i mean there's great drive in all of these guys and that's why they went on to be so successful i mean in many ways many ways personality wise patino and calhoun i think are very similar
0: and then basically uh like you mentioned around the same time they kind of get uh the upgrade and and we see once calhoun's at UConn, they're both in in the big east uh so is that kind of a um uh even getting that job is kind of a, for both of them, a significant representation of all that they've accomplished in two, you know, difficult for their own reasons, but difficult situations.
1: Absolutely, the speed with, I mean, Patino Patino leaves BU to go be an assistant with the Knicks. He's there working with QB Brown for two years. Patino was like the quintessential five-star basketball camp kid had worked with Hubie Brown and Bobby Knight and Chuck Daly and all these guys that were there in the sixties and seventies became a counselor there built all of BU's practices to be sort of pseudo five-star camp type type events. Then he gets the job at Providence and engages in what possibly the greatest rebuild in the history of college basketball. I mean, Providence, if UConn was bad, Providence was just, just was, just like the worst program in the big East at that time. I mean, they, they were considering even leaving the conference at one point before they got Patino 1985, they win six games, 1987. They're in the final four. Um, Billy Donovan was a guy who for the first two years, he was in college at Providence and played like five minutes a game. Patino turned him into the best point guard in the big East and an, and a deadly three point shooter. One of the things Patino did at Providence was, be really the the earliest adopter of the three-pointer it came in during the 86 87 season of college and a lot of coaches were very hesitant to even try it they saw it as be as ruining the game so they just put their head in the sand patino's like this is our ticket to be good so during so the team's three best outside shooters during the 86 87 season he didn't let them in practice take any shots that were not three-pointers he's like this will be our chance to win um, they they brought in a kid named Delray Brooks from Indiana, who, who's actually one of the more prominent characters in John Feinstein's um, season on the brink. He's like, you know, he's like the, uh, you know, guy who's in the doghouse for Bob Knight, the whole season, he comes <laughs> to Providence and he's like the second best three point shooter in the, um, in the uh, big East behind, but uh, behind uh, Billy Donovan, they win 25 games. They go to the final four, just, just unbelievable. And then he heads off to the Knicks to become their head coach.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, you know something. Something that I'm thinking about here is just you know watching, reading about these guys' stories, writing about it, studying it. Um, you must have just picked up a lot on on just broadly what it takes to succeed in in college basketball. Um, I mean, from the story of these guys, it sounds like building recruiting pipelines, right? Being so so important. Being willing to innovate uh, seems seems like a really important aspect of this. Often, you know, necessity uh, is the mother of innovation there, a lot of reasons for that, but what else did you learn just about kind of the the threads that that all successful coaches and programs have in common? I
1: would say those are two of the big things. I would say third, none of these guys ever made any excuses. I mean, they, they didn't have the resource a lot of the people they were playing against did. They, they did everything in their effort to make their teams competitive. And I think by being willing to adopt a radically different style than a lot of the other teams in the time period, it gave them an opportunity to compete they wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, man for man, they were frequently overmatched teams. I mean, BC had a little higher level of recruiting because they were in the Big East, but still they had to find guys in very unconventional places. Mm-hmm. BC in particular recruited well in Connecticut. Um, the guys who would have clearly, like, you know, Later on, you got like Scott Burrell and Chris Smith and all these guys from Connecticut that are early great players for, um, for Calhoun. A few years before that, there's John Bagley, there's Michael Adams, there's uh, Jay Murphy, there's John Garris. All four NBA guys were guys that BC recruited out of Connecticut in the late 70s and early 80s, um, mm-hmm. who probably should have been UConn guys, but um, they were they were all kind of diamonds in the rough for one way or for one reason or another um uh, in particular michael adams was was a guy who goes on to be an nba all-star was only five foot ten and had a very unconventional shot jay murphy was a very thin guy and also left-handed a lot of people didn't want to recruit left-handed shooters mm-hmm. in that time period um and john garris is a guy who transferred out of michigan and had kind of burned out there but then he goes and he's all big east uh at uh at, uh, at bc so they were able to find players in unconventional places all of these guys including bc who, who despite being in the big east had had difficulty getting guys to come. I mean, part of it was the academic requirements uh, at BC were tougher than a lot of their competitor schools. And it's something that basically every coach who's been at BC has, has had issues with, whether it was Gary Williams or Jim O'Brien or Al Skinner had issues with that at different times, just the difficulty of getting players admitted to the school.
0: Well, yeah, BC does have many, 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 many problems. We can definitely say that about Boston college conclusively Um Let's get back to our hero now, Jim Calhoun. Um, You know, something else that I would just be curious to hear your thoughts about was, um, you know, how did UConn land him? Because if at that point he kind of is a sought after individual, you know, why would the Boston College job not be of of more interest for him? Why would some other jobs not be of, of greater interest for him?
1: Jim Calhoun wanted the Boston College job for many years. He interviewed for it in 1986. It became, it became open when Gary Williams left. Um, they interviewed a lot of people. They ended up going with Jim O'Brien, who struggled a little bit and eventually did very well, but he certainly is no no Jim Calhoun. Um, I, I think the BC was very tied into wanting an alum at that point. They'd had a bunch of coaches that left quickly. Tom Davis was very successful there leaves and goes to Stanford you have Gary Williams who goes there leaves and goes to Ohio State and then eventually to Maryland I think they felt like they wanted to um I guess um what do you call it uh circle the wagons and have a guy who they thought would be there a long time and I would say Jim O'Brien was a very successful hire he was there 11 years he got them to the elite eight but he certainly did not have a track record like Jim Calhoun and Calhoun certainly made B.C. pay for it over time. I mean, Calhoun won the first 24 games in a row that he played against B.C. I mean, the two people he really had it in for were B.C. and Syracuse. In 1978, when he's coaching at Northeastern, they go out and they play in a, in a, in a blizzard out in out. In, uh, they used to play in a place called Manley Fieldhouse, which was like an 8500 seat barn, basically, before they went to the Carrier Dome. And it was like a foot of snow and like the entire state of New York was closed except for all the people at the Syracuse game and Syracuse just ran the score up on Northeastern. They beat him. Like I think it was like 103 to 68 and Jim Calhoun, who's a nobody at that point gets up in face, is Like I'm never going to forget this and I'm going to make you pay for it. And he did. I mean, when it came to big games, UConn took it to Syracuse. Like he never forgot what what Bayheim did to him. Certainly. Um, In terms of getting the UConn job specifically, from from the moment that job opened up john toner who was the ad had calhoun in mind having seen him at the uh, uh holiday tournament the connecticut mutual classic knowing this was a program builder that they needed somebody who had who could sit there for it would take him a while but he would build up a, a successful program over time this is certainly not the first job calhoun had been offered in that offseason he ironically got offered the northwestern job since most people thought it's where he was very coached already um He actually, at the final four in 1986, talks with Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight's like, don't take that job. That's a bad job. Go to a big state university. Don't go to a directional school. Don't go to a school like North, you know, I guess they got a direction in their name too. Don't go to a small private school that doesn't care about sports. Go to a big state university where you have a built-in fan base. Then UConn comes knocking and he takes that job. He also got offered gigs at Wichita State and I believe Old Dominion as well in that time period.
0: That's great. So that's great to learn where where his Syracuse hatred comes from, um, because that's really uh, something that every UConn fan has. And Bayheim, I actually did not I did not even know that Patina was was on Beheim's staff at, at one point. So, um, but it was,
1: it was quite the staff. It was it was Bayheim, Bernie Fine and Rick Patina was the, I mean, that's quite a coaching staff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Certainly quite a coaching staff uh for, for a variety of reasons. For a variety of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um so y- you mentioned this. Uh, there are some other guys uh of interest here in this world during this time who um are we could call familiar characters to Yukon fans who who followed throughout the Big East. I mean, even Gary Williams, that's not a name that I associate with Boston. Um any other guys, you know, that that you uh or gals that you came across in your research that that you found to be really integral to the the Jim Calhoun story, the the Big East basketball story, anything like that?
1: I mean, Jim O'Brien, who I mentioned, is a very interesting character. He'd been a I mean, BC got, was the NIT runner up in 1969 with Bob Cousy coaching the team. He was the team captain. He goes on, he plays in the ABA for a bunch of years. He's a UConn assistant with Dom Perno during their really good time period from like 76 to 81 corny thompson who was one of the best players in the east in the late 70s was a he was the uh he was the ecac player of the year as a freshman i think in 77 uh, uh o'brien played a significant role in mentoring him um there was a guy named chuck alex alex, alex not alex Zankis, who was a really good player at uconn in the late 70s also a big man who uh o'brien uh mentored i mean he was a very successful coach at uconn i mean i think in some ways when o'brien left as a Perno assistant, it seems like there was a decline in the program, whether it was because of recruiting or it could have, I mean, I'm not exactly sure why that was the case, but there was a clear uh, decline at that point. Um, O'Brien leaves to become the coach at St. Bonaventure uh, mm-hmm. and is very successful there on the Atl- the Eastern 8, which becomes the Atlantic 10, uh, and then gets the, uh, the BC job. Mike Jarvis is a particularly fascinating character in this book. I think he belongs in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I argue it uh, in the book. Um, Jarvis is a guy from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, he uh played at Northeastern, was a guy who was never a starter in college, ends up being Calhoun's assistant at Northeastern for a couple for a year, before becoming an assistant at Harvard for a guy named Satch Sanders, who was a Hall of Famer with the Celtics. Um, eventually he becomes a high school coach in Cambridge. He coaches a school named called Cambridge Ringe in Latin, which is where Patrick Ewing and Ramil Robinson and Carl Hobbs and a lot of very prominent players went. In the late 70s and early 80s, um, he oversees Ewing's recruitment when every school in the country wants him. Ewing is the child of Jamaican immigrants. Um, all of a sudden they come to America and their son is this guy that everybody in the country wants wants a piece of. Uh, Jarvis very much looked down for him and was an activist on his behalf he set forth very clear standards for what uh, how his recruitment was going to work. And if you didn't follow those rules, uh, you weren't going to get to talk to Patrick Ewing and uh, he found a great home at Georgetown and went on to be one of the great players in the college, history of both college basketball and professional basketball. Um, Jarvis eventually becomes the coach at BU a, a couple of years after Patino leaves a guy named John Kuster's there for right after Patino and they aren't that successful. Jarvis is fantastic at BU. Um, once, Calhoun leaves Northeastern um, Northeastern starts to fade a little bit um, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. I go into in the book, but um, Jarvis's BU team takes over as the power in the, in uh, the, in the, in the, in the, in the region among the smaller conferences, they go to two NCAA tournaments. He then goes to George Washington, gets them to the sweet 16 and then goes to the uh, to St. John's and gets them to the sweet 16 as well. So he's a guy who brings three different schools to the tournaments is one of the great high school coaches of all time. And I think one of the great figures in terms of mentoring uh, players in the history of uh, college basketball. So I think his story is quite interesting, too. And also one of the first African-American Division I college basketball coaches, too. Mm -hmm. Certainly not the first, but but among the first handful, among the first very prominent Mm -hmm. uh, coaches, too.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, it's always good to know a little bit more about the folks who you just, you know, for me, I just kind of knew them as opponent coaches and uh, frankly, hoping they lose, right? uh but it's it's always interesting to learn the the fuller story um along those lines uh let's let's fast forward to present day how do you feel about seeing rick patino back in the big east at saint john's
1: rick patino will be coaching somewhere until the day he dies i think (laughs) Um, he was the one of the three i couldn't i didn't get a chance to talk to i had several people whom i interviewed um reach out to him but he first of all i would say he's had some you know, difficult relations with the press in recent years. And that's, I understand being a little, um, you know, I guess cautious about such things. And also he was certainly busy building up Iona and now building up the St. John's program. One thing I will say, one thing I'll certainly say for Patino, every single guy I talked to who played for him is still ready to run through a brick wall for him. I mean, the guys who played for him at BU are an incredibly tight and loyal bunch to this day. The minute I talked to one of them, I was talking to all of them. I mean, they just have such. I mean, I won't go into. Some, there's some, there's some certainly some reasons for that to, for during his tenure that I won't really go into. But it's 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 remarkable the sense of brotherhood and love those guys have for each, for each other to this day. That's true for all of those teams, but there was something in particular about that um, Patino BU team where I really felt that among the guys I talked to. I did roughly a hundred interviews for the book and talked to a lot of players. For all for all three programs i talked to media members coaches i talked to i also talked to quite a few opposing players from the different teams i think except for pitt i talked to a player from every one of the big East schools that played bc and i and in the ecac north was the conference that bu and northeastern were in and i talked to a player from every one of the opposing schools Uh, who faced Patino and Calhoun as well as a bunch of the coaches from the conference in that time period too.
0: Nice. Yeah. I mean, it was so interesting. You were talking about kind of um, what happened when he Patino joined different schools and it sounded exactly like the playbook he ran just now when he just took a new job was, you know, get out there in the press, be aggressive, recruit people, uh, say, you're going to do it fun, try and make it as big of a show as possible he wants games. He wants more games in Madison Square Garden. Um, it's definitely going to bring an interesting element to the Big East going forward. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, all this stuff happened at BU too. I mean, they had an ice rink there, and he and he convinced the athletic director to buy a forty thousand dollar movable floor to stick on top of it. The problem was there was very little insulation between the two. There'd be frozen <laughs> spots on the court. Yeah. The playing temperature was like thirty eight degrees sometimes. It was also this cavernous. Um, gym with terrible backdrops it was a very tough place to shoot but it seemed more big time so they were playing in you know 5,000 seat hockey um, <laughs> venue as opposed to a you know 800 seat basically high school gym
0: yeah and then you mentioned you had the chance to speak with Jim Calhoun and and it sounds like a number of, of former players as well anything that you had to anything that kind of ended up on the cutting room floor just because of the nature of of the writing process that you feel like uh sharing out to the world?
1: You know, I my I always write way too much. I think the book was originally 550 pages. I think it's going to be published at 380. One thing is I really had to cut down on some of the game accounts. Um I mean I I actually I mean I mean it's out there already, but I think there's something to be said for being able to just walk through the feel and emotions of a game. There's still a fair amount of that in the book but I had I had to cut down on some of that. Um I'm trying to think on the cutting room floor what would be um I think at times maybe the book was also a little too talky a little too quote heavy since i talked to 100 people i tried to get all of them in there a bunch of times so i think maybe i was a little over generous with that maybe somewhere down the road there can be a uh you know director's cut version i guess Mm -hmm. um my my first book was originally about 830 pages and ended up at 500 so i i i tend to tend to go a little long
0: Maybe we'll have you do a, a graphic novel of just the Jim Calhoun origin story and have, and have some fun with it. Something that would be
1: about. that would be fascinating. That'd be great. <laughs>
0: um, great. Well, uh, Clayton, I want to just leave the last you know minute or two of our conversation here to let you plug anything else you've got. Uh, of course, there's this wonderful book that you can share the title of again and how to find you on social media, anything like that.
1: Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Clayton Truder. I'm on Twitter at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R at Clayton Truder. You can find me on Facebook. I'm happy to be your friend. I think I've got like 800 left I can have. I try to be everybody's friend who has a basketball in their uh, profile. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn and stuff too. I'm, I'm I'm all over social media. Please, please say hi. Um, the book is called Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Coaches. I was told to put Rick Pitino first because he's in the news more. That's what well, he's first on the list you can save 40 the book comes out on november 1st but you can save 40 percent right now in the book if you use promo code 6af23 at the website bit.ly slash boston ball just like a typical bit.ly account type thing slash boston ball i'll uh leave you with the particulars of that but uh yeah it's over on the being published by the university of nebraska press who published my first book who is probably the best press out there in terms of uh, sports history so i'm very proud to be associated with them and uh you can go to claytontruder.com as well and check out my freelancing work which is typically sports related too
0: wonderful well clayton thank you so much for the time for sharing your story for sharing your insight we'll be excited to check out the book when it comes out good luck with the everything else